All right, that's it. Uh, hey, we're in the book of Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2. Um, I want to just kind of explain the context of what we're doing, why we're doing this. This book is so important. It's basically, you could summarize by saying it's a book on Christology. It's a book on Jesus. Who is Jesus? What does he do? Why did he come? Um, who are we in light of who Jesus is? It has such a high view of Jesus. I mean, this book, as we've been walking through this, he's saying, listen, Jesus is not eminent. He's not important. He's preeminent. He's above it all. Many people have high views of Jesus. Many religions have high views of Jesus, but it's not high enough. He is the Son of God. In Him, the Godhead dwells bodily, as our text says today. Um, we need a, a better, higher view of Jesus. The hope of Colossians, Paul is writing to a church that was planted by this guy named Epaphras. Epaphras was just a guy who Jesus radically grabbed hold of his life. He lived in Colossae. That's in modern-day Turkey. Uh, it's near the churches, the seven churches of Revelation. It's kind of near those churches, but it's a modern-day Turkey. Epaphras goes home. He basically leads people to Jesus. A church is started. Paul's never been there, but he's writing this letter to them. Here's the idea. There's something known historically called like the Colossae or Coloss a heresy. And there, it's kind of a, a mixture of syncretism with Gnosticism, with Jewish mysticism and religiosity. We'll kind of try to break down the things they were dealing with. But he's writing this letter in response to some of those things. Luckily, at this point in time, the church hasn't embraced those ideologies. It, but it could. And other churches have at that point. And maybe it's starting to kind of trickle in by some of the comments he makes. He's like, you guys have stood firm in the faith. However, know this is at your door. There's bad ideas and ideologies standing at your door that want to take you away from Jesus. So the reason why I want you to see this today is uh, verse 15 through 20. It's like really a creed of the church. This was known as like a, a creed or a hymn. The church most likely got together and either repeated this, sung this, um, said this, but it was a, just a creed of who Jesus is, such a high view of Jesus. He says, so here's who Jesus is. Here's who you are. You are dead in your sins. You are far from God, but God has brought you in. God has reconciled you. And then he's saying, and now you have a ministry. Like go forth and be a minister, mature in the faith. Don't just be saved to be saved. Now be a part of this. Be a part of building the kingdom. And so here's where we're coming today. It's Colossians 2, verse 4 through 10. We're flying through this book. But we're going to be looking at verse 4 through 10. And the idea of this section, he's saying, okay, guys, mature in the faith. And remember last week, verse 3, everything we need for wisdom, for knowledge, it's found in Jesus. Everything is found in Jesus. And then he basically says in our text today, however, there are going to be people who try to pull you away from Jesus. Ideas, belief systems, thoughts, that try to stir your heart from Jesus. No, be rooted and grounded in Jesus. Walk in Jesus. And so Paul is basically reminding them, like, you have a ministry, but as you minister, people are going to try to pull you away from the true gospel of Jesus. And you have to be rooted in him. You never graduate the gospel of Jesus. So the idea with the, the book of Colossians is saying, uh, it's not Jesus and, it's just Jesus. It's Jesus, it's been said, it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's not Jesus and something else. It's Jesus. He was, however, what he's beginning to see is you're, you're maybe falling in the trap that's Jesus and keep the law. Jesus and there's deeper knowledge out there. Just come follow us. Just Jesus. So Paul's saying, don't fall for these lies, these traps, these ideologies. It's simply Jesus. Stay, stay close to Jesus. Focus on the person of Jesus. This is basically why he's writing it. Verse 4 through 10, many authors, commentators, pastors uh, believe that this is kind of the pivotal point of the message. And so in next week or in two weeks when we get, get to the text, we're actually going to look more at the religiosity influence 
But now we're going to look more at the Gnostic influence that was happening in the church, this bad idea from the outside. Are you guys still with me? Is that making sense? Okay, so here's the idea. We're just going to read this. We're going to pray, and uh, we're going to walk through this. Here's Paul's hope. Here's the title. Um, here's the focus today. It's simply walking with Jesus. Walking with Jesus. Just say, walk with Jesus. Walk with Jesus. Paul's like, this is it. Let's not complicate it. There's going to be a lot of bad ideas that come out there. Walk with Jesus. Walk in Jesus. And we'll talk about what that means. So we're going to read Colossians chapter 2, verse 4 is where we're going to be at. Colossians 2, verse 4 through 10. Why don't we just read this, and then we'll pray. Every time we get to the words in him, I'm going to have you say it. All right, verse 4. So he says, I say this. I say what? He says, everything's found in Jesus. The knowledge, the mysteries, the treasures. Everything's found in Jesus, verse 3. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Say, in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk, say, in him. So walk in him, rooted and built up and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits or principles of the world and not according to Christ. For the, full, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled who is the head of all rule and authority. Stop there. Why don't we just pray and uh, dive into this. Father, again, we just want to say thank you. We want to... Um, this morning, really lean into what it is you have for us, that everything we need is found in him, in Jesus. Lord, we ask that we would not complicate this, that we'd also be like Paul, where he calls out bad philosophies, human tradition, things that influenced the church then might be just repackaged, but the same today, and that Jesus, we would not combine who you are and what your word says with what the world says, Help us to discern even today, Jesus, maybe a worldview we, we got from some television show, from a professor, from a book we read. Lord, I ask you to help us to discern um, the world's traditions versus what your word says. And so we thank you. We ask that you be blessed, that you be glorified in your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, my son, Wyatt, he is almost 17 months. Um, he's a fun baby, man. He's just a super fun baby, super cute baby. Um, you know, he was born nine pounds, five ounces. My wife's a natural. I mean, you gotta give my wife credit. Oh, that's insane. Nine pounds, five ounces, a big baby. You don't have to clap for that. That's insane to me. Nine pounds, five ounces. He's eight days early, too. I mean, eight days early, big baby. And so uh, he's 17 months now, and, and you know, it's one of those things as parents, we're not concerned, but he's not, he's not walking yet, and he's definitely the latest one. Uh, there's probably a few reasons for that, but he's really sweet. He's at the stage where uh, he doesn't need anything to push up on. He can, like, stand up, so he, right, you know, does this every day, multiple times. But he'll stand up and, like, have a wide base and then look around and go, wow. And it's, like, the cutest thing. It's so funny to see his base, and he says, wow, and, like, we send a hand to him, and then he, like, he has not yet even taken a step. He's just, like, before I reach out, I'm going to sit squat, and then I'll reach out. And we're really trying hard, and there's probably a few reasons why he's not walking. I mean, he has a brother and sister, and every time he stands up, he gets bumped, or the dog's tail whacks in the face, and he falls. Um, 
but you can see he's, he wants to, he's trying, it's, it's, I'm at the, you know, it's just such a fun phase again, just to grab his hands and like walk with him and pull him a little bit and two hands or one hand and see him take that. It's just the sweetest little phrase. Uh, but there's lots of things in his path that are stunting his walk. I don't want to make excuses for him, but it's kind of true. You see things get in the way that kind of stunt the walk. And here's what Paul's saying. Um, there's nothing better than walking with Jesus, but as you walk with Jesus, there's going to be a lot of things that come down your path that stunt your walk or try to prohibit your walk. What he's bringing up is, and you know this, as soon as they start to walk, you run. You fall, you get hurt, you're still figuring out the whole going upstairs or downstairs kind of thing in your faith. So often the Bible talks about walking with God in this way, like, yes, as you walk, you're going to face new challenges, you're going to fall, you're going to get back up. Though, uh, you know, you fall seven times, a righteous man gets back up. There's this idea of just walking with God. I mean, this is one of the earliest analogies in the Bible. It's, it's, it's literal, and it's an, an, an analogy as well, but they walked with God in the cool of the garden. It says that Enoch walked with God, and he was no more. Enoch walked with God. It says Noah walked with God. Abraham and Isaac walked with God. There's just this idea biblically of walking with God, of close intimacy. I know you. I'm walking with you. Let's go. You're not alone. We're doing this together. Paul is saying this. I want you to walk with Jesus. I love the author, John. Uh, John said in 3 John 4, verse 4, because there's no chapters. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. This is just the idea of like, man, this is what it's about. It's about walking with Jesus. No greater joy than to hear it is so true when you, someone maybe knew years ago, and you're talking about them, and you're like, how are they? Are they still walking with Jesus? Oh, my gosh, it's so great to hear. Like, when you hear they're still walk, there's no greater joy, he says, than to hear that you're walking in truth. And there's this idea of just walking with Jesus. It's, it's something that you never, again, graduate from. You never said, well, years ago, when I was new to the faith, I walked with Jesus, but now I, I've moved on and beyond that. Like, never I think like in my marriage and any healthy relate, you walk with someone, you talk with them, you get to know them for years, for decades. You're still exploring that, that person, trying to get to know them. The, the idea in the New Testament is just walk with Jesus, don't complicate this. You know, we, um, when I was a youth pastor, I was a youth pastor for like eight years, my wife and I got really close to a girl who's a senior. She was graduating high school. And I remember over and over again, like it's weird, weirdly, where, you know, she's about to go off, we're talking about college, and there was this concern. She's like, I'm just really afraid. Like, wh why are you afraid? I'm afraid I'm going to walk away from Jesus. I'm like, why do you say that? I just think that, you know, freshman year is hard and professors and boys and this and that. Like, I think I might walk away. I'm like, well, first of all, please stop saying that. <laughs> I was like, you know, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. I do think it's very important not to just say that. Um, I think that's incredibly important. However, let's explore that. You have this fear of walking away from God. And I think she feared the wrong thing. And we try to get to the bottom of it, explore it. Why are you so afraid of walking away from Jesus? And really, here's what our conversation kind of went back to. Just walk with him today. And when you wake up, walk with him tomorrow. And just day by day, walk with Jesus. And don't complicate this. And I do think that sometimes you can go, but what if this happens? Or what if this person, or what if this idea, what if there's this concept or thought my professor throws out? I've never thought of. Walk with Jesus today. When that's thrown out to you, bring it to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, this is a really good question. This is a really good thought I haven't considered and I want to bring it to you. And just essentially our advice was just walk with him today. Tomorrow when you wake up, walk with him that day. But just fo focus on today. Tomorrow has enough issues of its own. And that was basically our, our encouragement to, to this young woman going into college. And the reason why I'm, again, bringing this up is Paul is saying, guys, Colossae, church, you're growing. God is doing something. It's amazing. But 
there's different heresies like, infiltrating the church. We see this in, in Ephesians, Galatians, the different churches Paul's writing to. It's happening to them. And he's like, be, beware of this. And know that many of you have been drawn, many of you have and will be drawn away from this. So this idea of walking with Jesus. I want to really break down our text, but use it as a diving board to a greater conversation for us in our day. So here's the first point. The first point is this. Um, barriers to walking with Jesus and blessings to walking with Jesus. Barriers to walking with Jesus and blessings to walking with Jesus. So here's what Paul says in verse 4. He goes, hey guys, everything, all the treasures, wisdom, knowledge in Jesus, verse 3. Verse 4, why don't we just read it so you can see the verse 4. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Look at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Specifically, Paul obviously has a few different worldviews in mind infiltrating the church, and we won't go super in-depth, but we'll kind of scratch the surface a bit. There's almost this like syncretistic mindset of how do we, you know, kind of steal from this belief system, this religion, how do we kind of make it all say the same thing or force-fit it? Uh, there, uh, there's docetism, there's Gnosticism, there's different things going around that was infiltrating the church. Uh, Gnosticism, I will summarize it. I know it can be much deeper and richer than this, but I'll summarize it the way it, it influenced the church. Here's the belief system on Gnosticism, essentially. Uh, they really believe that all material is evil or bad, including bodies. So that's like the first concept. Material, bad. So number two, the next thought was, therefore, since material is evil, Jesus is not God in the flesh. He did not come in human form, but it was an emanation from God. There's kind of like almost like a mystical kind of idea, like this divine spark lives in you. It's stuff we kind of hear today, they faced then. Um, and the idea was, no, no, Jesus might offer in us an element of the divine, but he's not fully divine. And Paul couldn't be more clear in our text that he read. He's like, no, no, the Godhead dwells in him bodily. It's in him, in him, in him. And so he's like, let me speak against this. Actually, God created material. Material is not inherently evil. In fact, yes, material, our bodies are influenced by sin, by evil, but Jesus will one day renew or resurrect our bodies. So it's not that it's inherently evil. God created sin, influenced it, and we, we, here we are today. So Paul is kind of calling out different belief systems and ideas. But here's what I want to do, um, because I do think today it's like, okay, as I'm reading through this text and praying through this, it's like, we're not really, I don't know if you have a neighbor, um, you talk to you like, oh, they're actually agnostic. Like, that's not very common. It's just not today, South Florida. But what are certain belief systems influencing our church today? So here's the idea. I want to look at the verse again, really quick. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible, even through reasonable arguments. They will be reasonable. You'll go, you know what, that makes a lot of sense. Verse 8 again, he says that, um, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits or principles of the world. He says, I don't want anyone to delude you. This word delude is this word deceive. I don't want anyone to deceive you. I don't want you to be deceived. They're reasonable. They're sound. There's, there's points where you go, wow, that makes a lot of sense from that person, that idea, that group of people, that way of thinking. There is a side where we can't deny, like, no, they're, they're make, that does make a lot of sense. Certain worldviews, you go, I actually can see their perspective in this way. However, I want to see everything through the framework and lens of Jesus. And so Paul's like, here's some things we have to dialogue about. So here's how I want to break this down for us today, if you guys can bear with me, because I do think we need to like kind of make this, okay, Lord, what is this in 2023? And there's so many things we could talk about, but a few things I want to look at. Uh, three D words, we're going to look at deceiving, deconstructing, and drifting. Deceiving, deconstructing, and drifting. I think that these are plausible things, arguments, reasons. Um, he says, I don't want you to, notice that phrase in verse 8, I don't want you to love philosophy. The word philosophy simply means um, lover of wisdom. That's this word philo, like phileo, lover. Like loving, loving wisdom, Sophia, this idea of philosophy. 
this lover of wisdom. He's like, ah, listen, you can, I don't want you to love that. I want you to love something more than that. The idea is this. It's not that Christians um, don't study. It's not that we don't read. It's not that we don't think by any means, actually. In fact, we have the creator of the universe who created and thought of all of this and put a mind in us. So we definitely think and contemplate and look at things objectively, and we try to stand back. So it's not that easy, but I want you to love something even more than wisdom. I think in my heart, it's easy to go, I love books. I love reading. I love learning. I love conversations on certain topics. But do I love God more than that? <laughs> and do I love that for the sake of feeling smart? feeling like I could, I could stop them in their ridiculous argument? Or do I just go, God, I love you. I want to know you. But I also want to be very aware of what kind of infiltrates the church like Paul talks about. So as we talk about deceiving, deconstructing, drifting, I'm going to give you another three. Here's the idea. Under deceiving, um, I want to throw out a few different ideas and things I think that have influenced the church, and I want to impact that to my, the best of my building will move on. There's only two points today. All right, you guys with me? Under deceiving, I want to look at hedonism, scientism, and relativism. Um, here's the reason. There's a lot of things we could talk about. Humanism, secularism, postmodernism, there's a lot of things we talk about. I think they're kind of offshoots of this in the church, but I want to kind of look at the church and ideas that kind of have influenced us today. Where we're at today, this church then, and our church today. So hedonism, let's just look at this simple idea. I'm going to give you basic definitions, and we'll unpack it. Hedonism, the belief that pleasure or happiness is the most important goal of life. Um, this, obviously, mindset is still, obviously, a big part of the church today, the American church especially. Like, that, a lot of times it's easy for us to think that God's chief goal is to make us happy. That's not the case. Now, God is good. God is a father. God wants us to also, yes, like enjoy everything he made. Ecclesiastes talks about that. There's a sense of enjoying. But God's chief aim is not your temporal happiness. I would say in many ways it's, it's your eternal state. It's not so much about your temporal happiness, but your eternal state. So here's the idea. Um, here's how, why I believe I think this has influenced the church and still does in my life. I just have to fight hedonistic kind of ideas. Here's how we use it today. We don't say hedonism, by the way. None of these words we say, but we just believe into it. So here's the idea. Um, hedonism. You know, this is, we'll put some of the phrases up. You do you, man. You do you. Okay? Treat yourself. Hedonism. Follow your heart. Do what makes you happy. Carpe diem. Seize the day. YOLO. No one says YOLO. I know. But not anymore. But so there's certain ideas or frameworks or mindsets that we basically take on. Hey, just do what makes you happy. Where does that come from? Hey, doesn't, and even the church, doesn't God want you to be happy? We even frame it like that. God wants you to be happy, right? Sometimes you even have self-talk like that. Well, wouldn't God want me to be happy? I want to call this out because I do think that this has taken so much away from the church today. I think God is so much more concerned with my holiness than he is my happiness. However, however, I want to say this, as you seek to live like Jesus, walk with Jesus, as you seek to be separate and, and be holy as I am holy, God says over and over, be holy as I am holy, be holy as I am holy, I think God knows that that leads to happiness. That leads to peace that surpasses understanding. That leads to a deep satisfaction we can't explain. So I want to be very careful as I talk about this because I do think there's a difference, obviously, between like happiness, like a temporary fix versus like deep, rich satisfaction, something greater than the circumstances around me. And I think that God offers us something so much more meaningful and rich that despite my circumstances, I can have a satisfaction. Yes, I can grieve. Yes, I can weep. But I can have this thing in me, if you want to call it satisfaction, peace, joy, this thing in me that transcends the circumstances around me. God's like, I offer that to you. And I do think that stems more from holiness than it does just, I got to find my chief aim, which is happiness. Here's the thing. Um, the church, since the very beginning, fell victim to hedonistic ideas. Paul said in his last letter, right before he was beheaded and murdered, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 4, for Demas has forsaken me. Why? Having loved this present world. It's, it's a sense of hedonism. Like, I'm gonna, I have this desire 
maybe God's getting in the way of some desire. It, it is bizarre when I talk to people and it's like, well, I thought God would do all these things for me and he didn't, so that's why I walked away from him. And I'm like, so God was a genie who didn't answer your wishes and now you're mad at this genie. That's not God. And we have to understand that it's not so much about, again, God's like, I, I, of course, I'm a good father and every good and perfect gift comes from above. We have to believe that. Everything good in your life is from God. Anything good in your life, even your mind, your thinking, your work ethic, all that comes from God, man. What a gift. He's so good. But he's so much more concerned about where I spend eternity than am I happy in this moment. He's so much more concerned that I be holy as he's holy. And so I want to say this, hedonism, we might not call it that, but I do think we have to fight against this certain idea or ideology that bleeds into the church. This can come across as materialism, the pursuit of things, this can come across maybe Epicureanism. Like there's all these different isms. I think it branch out from this and we can debate about that. But the idea is like, I do think that this kind of creeps into the church in some ways we have to be aware of. I can't act like this just plagues the world's heart. This, oh, out there, those hedonistic people. No, it's in the church. And we, we do see this a lot. I thought God would. Why didn't God? Well, again, you thought God was the thing that is going to give you happiness in some other form, but God is the happiness. Like, every, the, he is the source. You, you need to want him, not, not the things he can give you. It's Psalm 27 where God says to David, David, seek my face. And he goes, your face, Lord, I will seek. Not like, seek my hand, David. Okay, God, I'm seeking your hand. We seek the hand. I think I seek the hand. I think the American church seeks the hand. But he says, seek my face. Seek my face. Your face, Lord, I'll seek. I want to say this, like we have to fight against the hedonistic ideologies that have bled into the church, and we'll kind of unpack that more in different ways, but um, I love how John Piper talks about Christian hedonism. <laughs> Maybe you've heard this phrase, but he, he breaks this down. Here's his phrase, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. He's like, you, we have, there's hedonism bleeding into the church, but God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. He's saying, find that, like the, the hedonism you're exploring and looking, everything you think that will make you happy, it's found in him. That, that void you're trying to fill, it's found in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Here's another ideology. You guys okay? You guys with me? That, okay. All right. Another ideology and, uh, I think that we have to acknowledge, and I want to actually kind of break down a little bit more. Um, I called it scientism because I didn't call it that. A lot of other biblical scholars and writers call it scientism. Let me just be really clear. Um, I don't think the, that Christians or the Bible are, is at odds with science by no means. I actually feel like they... They, go, they coexist really well. Um, I want to recommend a couple books to you that I think have been helpful for me. One is this. Uh, Paul Coben wrote a book called How Do I Know You're Not Wrong? All right? Um, how do I know? How do you know you're not wrong? I would highly encourage this. If you're in that kind of exploratory phase of your life, it could be any age, or maybe you're in that college age, post-college age, pre-college age, maybe you're in adulthood and you're, people at your office make fun of it. This is a phenomenal book. How do you know you're not wrong? It's a phenomenal question we should be asking ourselves. Uh, how do you know you're not wrong? Um, I think others should be asking them, this question, himself this question. He, so he kind of breaks down some sections on scientism. Um, so I'll, I'll use his definitions in a second. Another book that I read a couple summers ago that has meant so much to me, a book by John Lennox called Can Science Explain Everything? Phenomenal book. Can Science Explain Everything? A little book. Um, sometimes in the church, I think we almost get fearful of the topics of, of the, or the conversation that science and Christianity and how do they coexist. Let me kind of explain a couple of things I love that call, Paul Copen does, and I want to break it down even more. He says this, science is different from scientism. Is this quote up? The scientific is different from the scientistic. Science studies the natural world. Scientism tends to reduce or limit 
all legitimate knowledge to scientific methodology, epistemology. Scientism tends to assume that only the physical world is real, ontology, and is therefore the only realm of knowledge. Scientism goes beyond the actual study of the world of nature. Here's how uh, I think a lot of authors who put it well, again, John Lennox's book was really influential for me, because um, I, as a Christian, you go, man, how do I reconcile maybe what the science and the academic world is saying versus what the Bible says? And I, I love how John Lennox, John Lennox approaches this. He's like, hey, you have to consider this. Just because a scientist says something doesn't mean it's rooted in science. And just because a, science, a scientist or doctor or some academic says something doesn't even mean it's rooted in academia or it's rooted in something else. The idea being that um, a lot of times we call this like a non sequitur. They'll say some statement about the cosmos or universe, and then they'll say, so therefore God does not exist. And you're like, that, so how you set that up, your ending, your conclusion does not match what you said. So for example, Carl Sagan, famous astronomer, used to have a TV show, I think back in like the 90s. Carl Sagan said this, the cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. That is not a scientific statement. (laughs) That is a scientistic statement. That's his idea. He's basically, no, no, just, just because Carl Sagan, a scientist, says the cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. No, that's actually deeply rooted in uh, philosophy as well. You're assuming something you're, it, it ever will be. There's nothing outside of that. Have you studied that? Did that come from observation only? So that he says there's a difference between like, a scientist and a scientism. And I think we should consider what this means or looks like. So let me put it another way in case you're like, I'm still not with you. Um, I love how John Lennox said this in the book I mentioned. He said, of course I reject atheism because I believe Christianity to be true. Like, yes, I'm going to acknowledge that. He goes, but I also reject it because I am a scientist. How could I be impressed with a worldview that undermines the very rationality we need to do science? Science and God mix very well. It is science and atheism that do not mix. There's so many ways to break this down. It's saying, hey, chaos does not create order, but that's obviously what you're claiming uh, through maybe the origin of the universe. Chaos brings order. He goes, I don't know. I think order brings order. I think the idea that if chaos brings order, why even trust your mind? I think there's, why trust any of your thoughts if this is all burst through chaos? I think there's so many things, just because a scientist says it doesn't mean it's rooted in science. They're probably actually telling you more their worldview, their atheistic worldview, agnostic worldview. So they're actually involving philosophy with their science. It's a non sequitur. They're saying, uh, here's something true about the universe, therefore God cannot be real. No, that's a crazy conclusion that you just jumped to that is not rooted in science. It sounded scientific, but it was scientistic. Are you guys with me? Is that making a little more sense? Here's what I want to end with in case you're not. I love this because, again, we think these things go at odds with each other. Um, And I'm just going to give you a little snippet, but he goes way more in depth. The greatest scientists, obviously, for the last few hundred years have been followers of Jesus leading into the 21st century. Put this verse up. Um, John Lennox says, if science and God do not mix, there would be no Christian Nobel Prize winners. In fact, between 1901 and 2000, over 60% of Nobel laureates were Christians. According to 100 years of Nobel Prizes, 2005, by uh, Barack Abba Shalev, a review of Nobel Prizes awarded between 1901 and 2000, 65.4% of Nobel Prize uh, laureates have identified Christianity in its various forms as the religious preference. Overall, Christians have won a total of 78.3% Of all the Nobel Prizes in peace, 72.5 in chemistry, 65.3 in physics, 62% in medicine, 54% in economics, and 49.5% of all literature awards have been Christians. 
Sometimes we do think like, oh my gosh, I feel like there's the academic world and there's Christians and the Christians just check their brain at the door. It's like, no, like the history, even the last century, the majority have been followers of Jesus. The ones that say, hey, we're going to re- reward you. You're giving you an award for some sort of innovative idea or something you saw or came up with. More than half on economics, chemistry, you name it, have been followers of Jesus. The reason why I think this is important is sometimes it's so easy to get discouraged. And you're like, is anyone in the academic field a Christian? Does anyone here who believes in science, like the whole Nacho Libre, I believe in science. I feel like we're like, oh, it's so scary. Like, they believe in science. And <laughs> do we lose this battle? Whether it's Sir Isaac Newton to Francis Collins, followers of Jesus dedicated to the gospel. Whether you agree with everything they say or do, the point is 400 years ago to the today, some of the greatest thinkers in the world, some of the greatest scientists specifically in the world have been followers of Jesus. Some of the greatest inventions in the scientific realm have been followers of Jesus. I can't recommend that book enough. It is so profound. Again, the reason why I think this is um, important, I want to read this, um, this idea. Listen to this. I'll put this. Hopefully you can put this up. Scientists aren't necessarily more objective than another community of scholars. They, like the rest of us, must check themselves to make sure that their biases or philosophical outlooks don't override, distort, or close off relevant evidence in an argument. The humans like us, they have biases, you could say like us. We have to be so careful, I understand it's so overwhelming at times, you're like, my professor said, this doctor with all these letters behind their name said, and you have to be very aware. It's so funny when you hear these contradicting statements. I, I've heard things like this, um, I will never believe it unless you can prove it scientifically and empirically, okay? Can you prove that sentence scientifically? It, it, it's, it's so falsified when you really get at the heart of it. It's so circular. I will never believe it unless you can prove it scientifically. Prove to me that sentence scientifically. There, there's an element of philosophical we have to acknowledge in all of these conversations. They make a scientific claim and they jump to some argument that has nothing to do and it's not rooted in science. So the reason why I'm bringing this up is church. I'm not trying to, I'm trying to say beware of maybe being discouraged of ideologies, of leaving the faith. You're like, well, this professor just threw me off. There's a reason, there's a hope. Uh, there's a couple of the books I just mentioned that I hope would be helpful. Here's the third thing. I think it's the third, yeah, the third thing. We looked at hedonism, uh, scientism, and the third thing is this relativism. But let me just explain the simple definition and we'll kind of break it down. Relativism, the doctrine that there are no absolute truths. Now, there's a lot of ways you can look at the relativism, like moral relativism and different things like that. But, I mean, the idea of relativism is, is hilarious to me, right? Obviously, you guys look at that phrase, you know what's wrong. There are no absolute truths. Is that an absolute truth? Except for this one. There's so many things that are so circular and don't make sense. And if you just like, take a break and before we get freaked out, and it's like, well, maybe you see it from this perspective, they see it from that perspective, but that's your, their truth, that's your truth. There's no objective truth. How dare we claim to have objective truth except for that statement I made that's an objective truth? And it's, again, though sometimes you hear these things and you're like, it does freak you out. You're like, yeah, I guess everyone does have an opinion. And maybe there is no absolute truth. But the only absolute truth is there is no absolute truth. And I'm going to cling to that. There's just so many issues that are, and things that are wrong with this. I want to recommend another book to you. Again, the last book. It's by Paul Cope. And he says, true for you, but not for me. I think I read this around 19 years old. It was powerful. I needed this. Struggling in my face, struggling. Like, do I really, why do I believe this? Is there such a thing as truth? Can you know truth? If truth is knowable, can you even know it? How do you know that? Uh, true for you, but not for me by Paul Copen. Super helpful. Let me give you a couple quick ideas. I said the first one, basically. You can't in the same breath say nothing is universally true and my view is universally true. Relativism falsifies itself. Okay, let's go to the next one. Um, Relativists are selective, picking and choosing when it's all relative and when it's time to stand up for rights. Hey, man, we shouldn't speak into that. Let them do their thing. You must do our thing. It's very selective on what it believes is moral and immoral. It's saying, hey, is, is rape wrong? Of course rape is wrong. Okay, in India, they're taking little girls and raping them in the name of their religion. Is that wrong? Well, that's just their culture. Do you really want to bank on that? 
is it universally true or not? So they're very selective, he's saying. I think it's a phenomenal argument. Next to this, um, are, are relativists really willing to say that there are, no, there are no views are false? That, for instance, ethnic cleansing for the greater good isn't really wrong for some people. The idea is, like, uh, you can play this out in so many different ways. It's like, well, what's true for you might not be true for them. What about different ethnic cleansings that happened in Rwanda or Germany during World War II or modern day Syria, you name it. Well, okay, maybe ethnic cleansings are... Again, it's, it's selective. It, it picks and chooses, but you see this playing to the church. I see this a lot of times when it comes to studying scripture. Well, Josiah, that's just your interpretation. No, the author had an intent. We needed to find, now listen, I think there's something about a community of believers coming together and discovering and using hermeneutics and good practices to come to the true conclusion, but you see this so often bleeding into the church where it's like, Josiah, you might believe this about fill in the blank topic, but really, in reality, that's just your opinion or the way in which you interpret this. An idea is this. There's something I want to point out. There's something called the doctrine of perspicuity that's been so helpful for me. Bear with me in case you're like, what is that? Um, here's the idea. The doctrine of perspicuity. Here's the idea. God is not trying to trick us. God is not trying to make it difficult for us to know truth. You have to rely on God. Here's the idea. God is not like, how can I make it really difficult? Let me say it in a way that's really confusing. No. The intent and heart of God, God is not the author of confusion. God is like, I actually do want to make things clear. This has been so helpful for me when people try to kind of get me in these higher arguments of like, well, decide this is just your opinion, other people this opinion. And it's like, you know what? If there is a God, does he want it to be confusing? Does he want it to be difficult for us to understand his revelation, his, his written word? Or are we trying to frame his word through our cultural context? And I do think relativism plagues the church in, in, in insane ways. And there's insane ways and there's just small, subtle ways. And we have to be very aware of this. I think that relativism has taken on different forms over the years. I think it kind of looks like postmodernism. I think it looks like critical theory to an extent. I think there's many things that this can kind of take different forms as, and we have to be aware of it as followers of Jesus. Listen, it will sound reasonable. It will sound plausible. It'll be like, this makes sense. And there's elements where it's like, yes, it does make sense. However, it's like that, you know, you're going fishing, and you're like, that's, a, that's some bait. That looks good to eat, but there's a hook. And there's usually something attached to that, and we have to be aware of that. Um, I, I do say this for a couple reasons. I love Paul. Um, well, let me actually bring it up like this. Maybe you saw these different videos. Maybe you saw, um, there's something right now called the Sparkle Creed. Now, this isn't super, you know, um, this isn't everywhere. But maybe you've seen certain churches, we have the Apostles' Creed. We believe in one God who eternally exists. And, like, we can talk about the Apostles' Creed. There's different churches, maybe it's Episcopalian or Methodist that have something. Now, this is not, I'm just, I'm, I'm using a small example. But just hear me out. I think this has become more and more common. I, I couldn't even post all the Sparkle Creed because I couldn't. Probably doesn't even like reading it, <laughs> but here's part of the Sparkle Creed. Sparkle Creed. We have the Apostles' Creed. They have the Sparkle Creed. I believe in the non-binary God whose pronouns are plural. I believe in Jesus Christ, their child, who wore a fabulous tunic and had two dads and saw everyone as a sibling child of God. I can't keep going. It keeps going. The reason why I'm showing you this is there are, there are people who say, I'm a follower of Jesus, and here's our creed. It's not scripture. It's not the Apostles' Creed. It's the Sparkle Creed. And I, I'm not going to even try to like say that with like laughing. or. I'm just saying this, there, there are definitely influences in the church that have taken on this mindset. And it might not be as um, obvious. It might be more subtle. My point of bringing this up is Paul's going, hey guys, listen, there's going to be some ideas that sound reasonable or that play into your disordered desires, that play into what you want to be true. Be aware. Be on guard. This is going to be common. The tra tradition of men. The love of philosophy. This is going to want to creep into the church. There's so many ways, and there's so many, as I was like studying for this and praying through this and prepping for this, I was like, Lord, we could keep going. There's so, much, so many more ideologies that have crept into the church. I think these are kind of like been the diving board, and they've taken on different faces, different words, different language, but we should be aware. I want to talk through this because I do think it's so important for us to know, okay, is there truth? Is truth noble? I believe it is.
I believe tr- truth is less of an idea and more of a person. I believe that person is Jesus and that he goes, no, no, you want to know truth? I, the cool thing is this, um, things can get lost in translation, in words, yeah. But Jesus is like, no, truth is a person. <laughs> it's, it's more than an idea. It's walking among us. You can know him, talk with him, love him. So the first point, sorry, uh, for, this is taking a minute, deceiving. <laughs> deceiving. I think what are some barriers to the faith? This being deceived, falling prey to some of these philosophical ideas or arguments for today. Number two, <laughs> bear with me. Uh, it's okay, we're going to go through this. Deconstructing. Um, let me say this, deconstructing. Maybe you've heard this word. It's been a lot the last couple of years. Um, deconstructing is very popular. There's podcasts and books on deconstructing your faith. So here's the simple idea. It's people who maybe once believed in Jesus no longer believe in Jesus for different reasons. Um, who says, oh, no, no, I, I went through the church, but the church, it, it's not where it's at. Trust me. I tried the whole Jesus thing. The answer's not there. Try this. So it's almost like here's an engine. Let's take apart the engine and never put it back together. Um, there's a lot of ways you could look at deconstructing, talk about deconstructing. Here's the thing to me that's ironic in it. It's like, oh, the church, they, they hurt people, and they've done so much pain to this world. Literally, if you take my course for $275, I'm going to show you a better way. Um, you know, I'll be honest. I'm going to call it out. I don't care. There's a guy named Josh Harris who wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Maybe you remember that if you're like me in the 90s, purity culture, whatever. He wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Josh Harris, this is a book. I like, hey, you got to read this on purity, purity culture, that whole thing. Um, Josh Harris is no longer a follower of Jesus, a believer in Jesus. He renounced Jesus. He says, I'm like, you know, he'll boast in his deconstruction opinions and ideas. You can pay him $275 for a few hours to hear more about um, how he deconstructed. And I'm like, wow, I love how deconstructing leads. You made a lot of money off the church the first time, and now deconstructing, it's really cool. Um, there's a lot of things I have that are, uh, that, that are hard with deconstructing. Here's what I want to say. If you are deconstructing your faith, let me say this. I am glad you are here. I don't want to belittle that. I think there is a, a genuine difference between deconstructing and really going, let me relook at some things in my faith or some things I grew up with that maybe are just not biblical, but they're more familiar. They're in my family. They're in my life. They're, they're extra Christian things that are less to do with the gospel of Jesus and more to do with my cult. Like, good, do that. Here, for example, there's a difference between doing this. Satan in the garden saying, um, did God really say? Right? Did God really say? I think that's deconstructing. Then there's Jesus who says what? You've heard it said, but I say to you. I think one is um, a malicious way of deconstructing, and one is a helpful way. I think one is going, um, Satan, did God really say, and it's like, you're not really trying to find out. You're just throwing that out there for the sake of throwing it out there. You're just saying it for the sake of saying it. Then there's like Jesus going, hey, I love you. You probably heard it said in church before, but I say to you. You probably maybe grew up with this cultural idea of God, but here's what I say to you. The reason why I say that I love Jesus there's a healthy way to maybe some things you grew up with that were not biblical, that were not good, that were not healthy, that were extra biblical, whatever. And it's okay to say, you know what? I've heard it said, but Jesus says to me. And Jesus brings a whole new perspective on this topic or issue or idea. You've heard it said, but I say to you. There's a healthy way to do this. There's a few reasons why people might deconstruct. I'm not going to get into this all the way, but here's a few reasons I wrote down. People, this is what my personal experience and talk to different people. Church hurt, personal pain, suffering, loss, cancer, death, whatever. Poor teaching, learning, just like more entertaining the sheep versus feeding. Justify lifestyle, street cred. <laughs> I mean, when you talk to people, there's almost this idea of like, yeah, yo, yo, the church hurt me so bad, I walked away. And it's like, okay, did, Je- is, did Jesus rise from the grave? <laughs> I'm sorry the church hurt you. Is there a God who came and walked among us, and did he die on the cross, a substitutionary death, and did he rise from the grave? I'm sorry the church hurt you, but is Jesus still who he claims to be? And there's an idea of like, okay, let's, let's look at that personal pain the suffering you walk through. How could God ever allow? 
your view of God. Like, there are reasons people maybe give for the reasons they're deconstructing their faith. I want to say this. I hope, I hope you know this. I've also talked to people. It's like, I wasn't able to ask questions in my home or at my church. I wasn't able to, like, throw that out there because maybe how they'd shame me. Please ask difficult questions. I'm not afraid of difficult questions. I'm very thankful for people who've asked difficult questions, not for the sake of asking, but for the sake of, like, I really want to know, would God leave us in the dark on this? Does God speak into this? The answer of, like, well, I guess we'll never know until heaven. That, I understand why that doesn't sit well with people. I get that. So explore it. Jesus is not like, whoa, 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 whoa. I've never heard this question before. Please don't bring that to me. He's like, he can handle those questions. I really believe that. And I think that we need to really, before we're just quick to just throw the baby out with the bathwater, maybe you go, okay, maybe there's, you've heard it said, but I say to you, maybe there's some things you've grown up with that are extra biblical outside of the Bible. And maybe it's cultural. Maybe it's imposed on you. And it's like, I'm sorry for the upbringing. I'm sorry for what you had, but it still doesn't take away from the person of Jesus. And so let's, let's get to that. Let's get to him. I love how uh, Paul Barnett, um, one author said this. He says, Christians need to think about what they are being taught rather than by being impressed by who is teaching them, however winsome he or she, she may be. So like, just think about, spend some time. Well, my professor who said, this YouTube person said, this really threw me off. It's like, okay, just because they're winsome, just because they're clever, just because they're reasonable, it doesn't mean it's true. Stand back, examine it. Anything I share with you, hold it to the word of God. Go look at Christian authors throughout the centuries, years. Like, hold it to the word of God. It's not just, okay, Josiah said it must be true either. No, like, hold it to Jesus. Bring it to Jesus. Say, I'm wrestling with this. I, I want to know you in this way. So we have deceiving, deconstructing. Lastly is this, drifting. I think this is a barrier to walking with Jesus. Now, hear me out. Maybe you're not deconstructing. Maybe you're not being deceived and believing some weird idea. But maybe you're just drifting. Maybe you're like, I just kind of been around it. But over time, you know, I kind of lost it. The author of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Pay attention to what you've heard, lest you would drift away from it. Give ear to it. My heart goes out to those who have just drifted. And you kind of go, how did I get here? I remember growing up, like, I didn't really, I wasn't a surfer. I can't claim that. Um, but I remember going to the beach as a kid. And my brother and sister did, like, junior lifeguards, and I'd go there with them some, go to the beach with them sometimes and go in the water in California, and the current is strong, man. I remember just walking to the water, and, like, 10 seconds later, turn around, and I'm like, where am I? <laughs> you know, like, you look back, and you're like, oh, my gosh, the blanket with the food's way over there now. Um, and you're like, I have no idea how I got here. It, it, was, it was just seconds. It felt like seconds. It, I don't think it was minutes. How did I get here? I think that happens in the Christian life. People go, how did I get here? Just seconds of walking away. Seconds of just the current of this world pulling me. Beware, beware, take heed to what you've heard, lest you drift away. It's so easy to grow cold in your heart to Jesus. I'm not immune to it. It's so easy to just go, I'm going through the motions, this is what we do. It's so easy to grow cold. Take heed what you've heard, lest you drift away. There are barriers to walking with Jesus. I don't know, maybe you've been deceived. Maybe you're deconstructing, maybe you're drifting. The solution is how we started this sermon, walk with Jesus. The solution is just be rooted and grounded and built up in him, in him, in him. Walk in him. So I want to look at really this next part, blessings to walking with Jesus. Blessings to walking with Jesus. Why don't you just look at verse 6 again, verse 6. He says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul's like, a lot of bad ideas and philosophies are going to come your way. Walk in him be rooted and bound in him. I need to look at this first phrase really quick. Verse six, notice how it begins. We cannot pass over this as we break down the text. Look at verse six. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. 
Here's the first thing. Um, you can't walk in him if you've not first yet received Christ Jesus the Lord. First receive Jesus as Lord. First come to the realization that you are not Lord. You are not God. You'd make a terrible God, in fact. So would I. We are not Lord. We are not God. As you received, received, and isn't that beautiful, that language? Not as you earned, not as you did a lot of stuff and then got Jesus. And you say, well, I'm not worthy to come to Jesus. Join the club. As you receive Jesus, so walk in him. As you received him. I just want to encourage you guys, just receive Jesus. It's so beautiful. It's described as a gift. The wages of sin is death. Man, you've worked for death. That's what I've worked for. I haven't worked for heaven. I've worked for death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. As you've received him, this, this gift of salvation, as you received him, so walk in him. So first of all, just receive Jesus. Don't try to walk in him if you haven't received him. Receive him. As you received him, so, so now let's walk in him. I was really struggling with this idea of walking in him. <laughs> I was like, okay, Lord, what does this look like? Like, I'm walking in a building. Okay, I'm walking in. I'm not, outside, I'm not outside of it, the building. I'm in it. I want to be in Christ. I want to explore the vastness that's in Christ. I want to explore all that's in Christ. Walk in him. Walk with, here's how I'd put it. Walk in him is walking like him. Jesus actually described what the Christian walk looks like. Um, I threw this out there, I think, at the beginning in Mark 8. I just want to read a couple of verses because I, I don't think we can leave this point. Like, here's the point, you guys. When I say walk with Jesus, Jesus tells us what this walk will look like. So follow the train of thought. It's in Mark 8, verse 34. I'll put the verses up here just so you can follow along with me. Uh, and this is the idea. When I say there's blessings to walking with Jesus, here's the first idea. Jesus offers you and I a better version of ourselves. Jesus offers a better self. And in Mark 8, this is what Jesus invites us into. Mark 8, look at what he says. Mark 8, 34. Jesus says, if anyone, are you anyone? Okay, cool. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If anyone, if anyone wants to come after me, you got to deny yourself. This is so different and counter the world. It's find the true you. You're not living into the true you. The reason you're unhappy right now is because you need to explore the true you. Like you hear some of these phrases of like not being yourself. I don't feel comfortable in myself. I feel out of place in myself. I'll say this, deny yourself. <laughs> deny yourself. If you want to find your life, lose it. If you feel uncomfortable in yourself, maybe that's actually a good thing. Maybe that's a probing thing. It's a probe. You say, you know what? I feel, I'm being encouraged. The world philosophy is I need to find the true self by exploring these ideas or desires or passions I have internally. Maybe I just don't feel, I don't feel like I'm at home in my body. The answer isn't find it, it's lose it. The answer isn't find it, it's deny it. Jesus says, you want to walk in me? Deny yourself, pick up the cross and follow me. That's insane. This is before Jesus died and picked up the cross. So the disciples must have been like, what are you talking about, bro? You're Jesus. You're going to overthrow Rome in just a moment. He's like, I'm going to the cross and you guys still don't get it. And if you want to follow me, pick up your cross. Imagine this. 2,000 years ago, you're in Jerusalem. You're in some part of the Roman Empire. Okay, just imagine. You're walking through the streets and you see a guy carrying a cross. You're like, oh, that guy's carrying a cross under the Roman Empire. What does that mean? He's probably on his way to die. <laughs> you see some guy carrying a cross down the road, you're going, oh, no. What did he do? This is the invitation Jesus gives to us. He goes, pick up your cross, follow me. You're on your way to die. Huh, what? If you want to find your life, you must lose it. It's not find the true you, it's deny, deny you. Deny you. Deny yourself. Deny yourself. John Mark Comer, a pastor, says in his book, I thought this is so profound. He said, listen to this. 
Self is the new God, the new spiritual authority, the new morality. But this puts a crushing weight on the self. One, it was never designed to bear. It must discover itself, become itself, stay true to itself, justify itself, make itself happy, perform and defend its fragile identity. The self is just this new God that you can never fulfill. You can never discover. You can never find by maybe if I just take these drugs or do this thing, then I'll find the truth. The idea is this. You want to find your life, your true self, you must give it up. You must lose it. The way of Jesus is so counter what the world offers. The world's like, find yourself by doing X, Y, Z. Jesus says, deny yourself. If you really want to know what you're here for, deny yourself. Say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's John the Baptist, I must decrease and he must increase. This is the idea of walking in him. What is walking in him? Walking with him, walking like him. Hey, take up your cross, follow me. I'm going to carry my cross. You're going to carry your cross too. I'm dying a salvific death on your behalf. I'm inviting you into that. Not that you can save yourselves, but just like I bore the cross for you, you can carry the cross, denial of yourself to find your life. Next, that's the idea. I've said this verse already, but if he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take his cross. Follow me. Verse 35, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. You want to save your life? You want to find your life? Lose it. Give it up. Jesus is so clear. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. And just hear me out. This is so profound. And maybe you've heard this before, but I have to read this. Listen to this. He says, listen to this about Mark 8.35. The principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Church, listen, please listen. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. You want to be raised from the dead? Die. (laughs) Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only, uh, only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. In him, everything else thrown in him. The idea is just you, you want to find your life, lose it, give it up. Jesus, and this is what it means to walk in him. I love how he says, what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Because what will a man give? Nothing will sell. We've tried it. We've tried. Listen, think about this. We've given into the hedonistic lifestyle. We've given into the relativistic lifestyle. It's led to probably the most depressed generation, the most drug-addicted generation that's probably ever existed. The point being of like, no, we've tried pursue yourself, make yourself happy. It's not working. The secular experiment is failing us. There's more pain, more divorce, no more depression. It's not working. Let's try something else. Let's try denying ourselves, picking up the cross and following Jesus. Everything we're told that would make us happy has not made us happy. Everything we're told that would satisfy you has not satisfied you. It's found not in something, it's found in someone. And that's the point. Walk in him. I love how Lewis went on to say this. He says, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I love that. Okay, just bear with me. I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. This is my pitch to be a Christian, you guys. (laughs) Uh, This is the point, though. 
It's like, it's not about like, come on, this is so much easier. It's like, no, it's going to be hard and you're going to deny yourself and pick up your cross and die to yourself. But it is so worth it because by losing your life, you're going to find it. You're going to find everything you've ever needed in Christ Jesus. That nothing will ever satisfy you like Jesus. Walk in him. Be rooted and grounded and built up in him. What are you doing? What are we doing? We've tried every other idea and ideology. It's not working. And maybe you say, I've tried Christianity. I don't know. I don't know. I said, maybe you've tried a version of it. Maybe you've tried a caricature of it. Maybe you've tried like a knockoff version of it. Maybe. But have you gone to the person of Jesus time and time again? Have you walked in him, walked with him? Have you said, you know what? Okay, I'm going to lose my life in you, Jesus. I'm going to actually do it this time. Not have tried this version of a knockoff version of Christianity because that does not work either. I agree with you. Maybe the whole American Christian version of Christianity is not working. I agree. So why don't we try the gospel of Jesus? So why don't we try what Jesus offers us? Jesus offers us something so much greater. My last thought is this. Jesus offers us an immovable kingdom. He says in verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. It's hard, by the way. I'm studying for this. He uses like three analogies in one. Walk in him, rooted, built up. I'm like, do I go walking or do the whole building thing? He's like, just be planted, rooted. Psalm 1, be like a tree planted by the river's water. Let your roots grow deep. Take, take your source of life from that stream of living water found in Jesus. Be rooted in him. Here's the idea, guys. This world is crazy movable. Everything shakes us. Everything moves us. Everything seems like, like, did the government shut down? Everything's like, it's so funny to me. Everything's movable. We live in a movable kingdom, and yet Jesus is like, no, no, you're a part of an immovable kingdom. Hebrews 12, 28 says, we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. How beautiful is that? In a world that you feel like everything's falling apart, because here's the thing as Christians, we can go, well, okay, things are falling apart. Okay, do I have my family? Okay, what if you lose that? Okay, do I have my money? Okay, what if you lose that? Do I have, the thing is, everything can be stripped away, but not Jesus. He's the anchor of the soul. He offers a kingdom that cannot be shaken. When everything else is falling apart, be rooted and built up and established in him, in him, in him, walk in him. So what are you saying, Josiah, is I should probably walk with Jesus? Yeah. Every day? Mm-hmm. So when different ideas and desires and tendencies come to me, walk in Jesus. Walk with Jesus. Be rooted in Jesus. Be established in Jesus. Things will come and go. People will come and go. I will come and go. Everything fades away, but the word of God endures forever. And be established in him. He's the immovable, unshakable. He's the, the immutable one, the one who does not change even though everything else changes. So thankful for Jesus. I love this because verse 9 and 10, and with the biggest exclamation point ever, and I just have to read it, obviously, because it's not fair to like miss this. Verse 9, in him, say everyone, in him. The, fu- the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. <laughs> and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul's like, I can't get more clear. Remember this word, play Roma, for fullness, play Roma. Maybe you're like, I don't remember. It's a couple weeks ago. It's okay. Play Roma was the word for fullness in Greek. The play Roma, if you look at Gnostic theology or beliefs, they talk about the play Roma, the fullness. We have the fullness. Paul, I love, throws their words in their face. He's like, the fullness, the play Roma you Gnostics brag about, it's in Jesus. The deity, the Godhead dwells in his body. I can't get more clear than that. Jesus is fully God. He's saying everything you need is found in God, and so everything you need is found in Jesus. 
one author, I just want to make it clear here because it might be a little confusing to some people who try to twist uh, Colossians 2, 9 and 10. A guy named Ben Witherington, one of the greatest minds out there for Christians. I'm going to butcher the way of saying this in Greek, but it's worth noting before we end. Here's what he says because I want you to know this. He says, the, the, theotes is an abstract noun. So he says the Godhead, theotes, the Godhead, theotes, is an abstract noun meaning the divine essence or Godhead as opposed to theitis, which indicates that which is God-like or divine quality. Paul is not claiming merely that Christ is God-like. Christ is not just another supernatural being or intermediary between humans and God, but God in the flesh and God in his fullness, the full representation of God. He's like, I want to be clear to my Gnostic friends. I want to be clear to my Mormon friends. I want to be clear to my Jehovah's Witness friends. Jesus is not God-like. He is God. And the word Paul uses could not be more clear because there's two words that Paul could have used. One is God-like, one is God. He's God. The fullness of him, that the deity dwells in him. Charles Wesley says this, thou, O Christ, art all I want more than all in thee I found. I find. You're all I want. Everything I need is in you. Everything is found in you. Listen, um, you don't need to look anywhere else. The exchange church, this is the hope of Colossians, it's the hope of God's word. You don't need to look to anything else. Nothing else will satisfy you. No idea? No hedonistic tendency? So just, you have this desire, therefore do it. Nothing will meet your deepest needs other than the person of Jesus. Everything, the fullness, the pleroma, everything's found in him. Amen? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to remember him by taking communion. I'm going to invite the worship team up here. We're not going to rush this. We're just going to enjoy this. I know you're thinking time. Can we just take time with Jesus, though? Can we just take time to reflect on the gospel? I want to be really clear. Listen, if you do not believe in Jesus, do not take this. But you are invited to take this. If right now you're saying, you know what? I never have confessed Jesus. But I do believe this, or I do want Jesus. Then take this. Eat, drink. But do not do it if you do not believe it. I would not take this or eat this or drink this if you don't believe that. It's more than fine. You can sit here as we close our service. But we just want to take some time and reflect on the person of Jesus. As you pull out this little cracker at the bottom of your cup and say, Jesus, thank you for your body that, you broke, that it was broken for me. When you look at this little juice, say, God, thank you for your blood that was shed for me. Thank you that everything I need to be filled and satisfied is found in you. Thank you, Jesus, that your blood washes away my sins. It takes away my sins. It removes the, the penalty that was against me because of your blood. We just want to spend some time focusing on the person of Jesus. Can we do that? I'm going to pray. Just during this time, if you would, just take, eat, drink, pray. You and Jesus. Talk to him. Thank him. Celebrate him. Thank you, Jesus, that everything I need is found in you. Thank you that in you dwells the deity, dwells Godhead. Thank you, Jesus. Spend time with him. Praise him. Look to him. I'm just going to pray for you guys now. Father, we just want to say thank you so much for your son, Jesus. We don't want to rush this or run through this. We want to look to your body and look to your blood and say, thank you, Jesus, that everything we need is found in you. Help us walk with and in you. Help us to do what you described about denying ourselves, picking up the cross and following you. Jesus, we thank you. We just want to praise you now in your precious name. Amen. Feel free to eat, drink, pray, worship. I'll be over here. Let's spend some time with Jesus.